0: about wildlife is that it the thing about wildlife is the thing about wildlife thing about wildlife is
1: the thing about wildlife is
0: feeling of interconnectedness that it's humbling is that it's It's insightful intriguing you belong
1: it's about all of us
0: always evokes a sense of wonder doesn't matter why you're here that's the thing about wildlife
2: Welcome back, fellow listeners of Wildlife Tales. It's already exciting to see how many of you are engaging with this series on the Anduvna-Nicobar Islands. And we are, of course, already off to a super start with the context that Manish Chandi laid out for us over the last couple of episodes. Today, I'm utterly thrilled to bring to you the deeply insightful voice of Dr. Madhuri Ramesh. She is a faculty member at the School of Development at Azim Premji University in Bangalore. Madhuri has worked in deserts, rainforests, coasts, and islands. She's a herpetologist who turned to political ecology for her PhD and later work. Her research in the Andaman Islands focuses on nature-society relations and the consequences of these negotiations for conservation and sustainability. Since Madhuri's experiences have been multifaceted in terms of topic and geography, our conversation spans several parts of the country, including the islands. It was truly wonderful to have this conversation with Akshay as well, as both of us have long admired Madhuri and her work and were a couple of enthu cutlets about picking her brain. So here it is, the thing about nature and culture. Happy
0: listening! Hi, Akshay and Ishika. It's fun to
1: be here and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, we are too. Um, so let's start from the beginning, Madhuri. Uh, you started off as an ecologist studying lizards in Rajasthan and tortoises in Anamalais. Uh Before we go even there, how did it happen? What were the early influences that got you to wanting to study wildlife and nature?
0: Okay, this is really a dive into the dark past. Uh, I. <laughs> Well, I used to read a lot. I still do. And uh, I had stumbled across these uh, the usual uh, urban suspects, no? James Herriot and Gerald and all of those kinds of books. So, and I liked animals. I had a lot of bizarre pets when I was growing up in spite of living mm-hmm. in a city. So I think the first chance I got, I, I went to see um, Crocodile Bank. Uh, And because I had been told, I think, in one of the Madras naturalist um, meetings, that they sometimes took student volunteers. And uh, so I just walked into Croc Bank when I was doing my undergrad and uh, I asked them if I could come and intern there and learn something about reptiles because that was not an animal group that I knew much about. Or to be honest, I was not even very comfortable with them, but I wanted to learn. Uh, and uh, in spite of this uh, confession of abysmal ignorance, they said, yes, please come. <laughs> and that's how I got started. Um, at that point, Harry Andrews was uh, there and sort of, uh, I think, directing um, uh, work in the crop bank. And he told me, why don't you start by trying to do a small observation study on these Travancore tortoises. There was this uh, small tortoise pit just near the office there. And that's how I got started, watching tortoise (laughs) behaviour. And obviously that took forever, but it still got me hooked. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah, and it got me hooked to such an extent that when I went to do my master's later, I wanted to do my thesis uh, on travel course in the wild. And that's how I fetched up in the anima And actually, all those uh, weekends of uh, staring at tortoises in Kragbank ha- helped because I had some sense of their behavior. And uh, most importantly, I think, a search image. It was still an enormously challenging thing to go and look for tortoises in an actual forest versus a tiny pit, uh, but uh, it helped. I think every little, little <laughs> bit of practice helps.
1: Yeah, and you had help too, right? In in yes. Andean the
0: they must help. Yes, so I worked with this uh, brilliant Carter person, Ganesan Anna, who uh, agreed to help me with finding tortoises and. Uh, Yeah, I've written about it in other places and I think that was one of the most transformative learning experiences I've had because frankly, I think I'm not somebody who found formal coursework exciting for the most part uh, until probably my PhD. So a lot of my uh, serious intensive learning has happened in the field through the kind of Uh, you know, insights people around me have provided there in the field or uh, the kind of questions they have raised. So these very early questions of uh, why are people not considered part of the landscape and how justice conservation, I mean, those kinds of real big questions were uh, raised constantly by people from the local communities that I interacted with. And that's actually what really pushed me to think more seriously about these social dimensions of conservation and to uh, become interested in anthropology itself. So I came to the reading and the sort of intellectual justifications much later. It was, first of all, a very personal impulse to know why things were playing out the way they were on the ground uh, versus the sort of sanitized ideas I was getting in
2: the classroom. I'm so glad you uh, mentioned that because that perfectly lines me up to what I was going to ask you, which was this shift from the more pure ecology into the social sciences, or maybe not a shift, but an addition of the social sciences into the ecological. But that must not have been very easy, right? Because it's a very different mindset to be in and even if you have that bit of a personal push and that's the realization that you need to bring the people into the picture, uh, doing it practically is a whole other ballgame. What was was that like for you and how did that end up happening and working?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's true. I'm kind of summarizing uh, almost 10-12 years of chewing over these things in like three sentences. Um, so the anomalies got me started in the sense of getting interested in indigenous uh, perspectives, knowledge making, just, you know, the local ecological knowledge, that sort of thing. Because it's, a, it's still, a, it was a fairly a peaceful coexistence that people had with the forest and, you know, even there's skirmishes with, the, say, forest department, and all were just that skirmishes. It wasn't a terribly conflicted space or anything. So in that sense, it was a great, uh, gentle beginning into the whole topic. And they had these beautiful um, cosmologies and stories about the forest and everything. So it was a very nice, uh, gentle entry into that whole topic. And then I went off to do other things, uh, but I think... I. Realized very forcefully that I really wanted to get a handle on the social dimensions when I went to Rajasthan. Um, there I worked on these uh, spiny-tailed lizards. And um, I, I found that uh, things like my caste, my gender, my field assistance, uh, you know, caste and uh, religion and gender and everything. All of these things were playing such a huge role in my sampling method though I was there to just study uh, lizards and this was not something I had really thought very seriously about how social locations matter and how they influence uh, biodiversity studies and uh, the whole idea of social justice also came back with the A huge wallop actually for me personally because this caste discrimination thing is so strong in rural Rajasthan I mean I'm talking about 2007 like that and it was just very in my face and uh, very troubling really deeply troubling to be you know confronted with that and I realized that a lot of my work was in fact possible because I belong to certain elite groups in terms of my education, my background, my class, this, that. Um, so I had to be strategic about when I play the outsider card. That's one landscape where I could not have worked if I had pretended to be an insider or attempted to be an insider because the restrictions on women is just enormous. So these kinds of, you know, unscripted realizations were happening on the field. And um, I mean, more than these personal, uh, you know, experiences of bias or whatever, I was very troubled by these caste uh, stratifications that would happen in terms of where our research team could go and eat or drink or rest for the night, because uh, the driver in that project, my field assistant and me, we were all Obviously, different communities, different social backgrounds. And finding villages where all three of us were acceptable was a humongous challenge. Um, the other thing that happened was also uh, only after i worked there for a couple of months, I realized that some of the national parks had only gone through the preliminary notification process. The final notification was not complete. And there was often pressure from the local groups if they were uh, upper caste, they would uh, push for the boundaries to be changed in such a way that maybe lower caste people would get displaced or restricted, but that they would be outside the lines of the park. And this was all very open discussions, like no one there seemed to think it was a problem to draw biodiversity, you know, reserve lines on these kinds of grounds. But I was just very deeply troubled by these kinds of conversations that I was hearing and I was a part of. And I did have the sociological uh, historical training, right, to make sense of these things. I mean, to anyone with a social science background, these would probably be no-brainers and they're going to be laughing at how naive uh, an ecologist was to walk into that landscape and be surprised by these things. But the truth is that I was... um, quite uh, disturbed by all of that and uh, I also felt conservation itself was so unjust. I still remember one stark comment um, uh, somebody from the shepherding community made to me. Uh, We were talking about how he had a huge number of uh, goats and sheep actually so he was pretty well off by local standards. And uh, he used to often have these conflicts with the Forest Department people because he would uh, graze his entire flock right inside one of the Desert National Park enclosures. Um, so one day I was chatting with him and I asked him, you know, what is it? Why do you keep doing it? Do you know that this is a protected area and those guys are going to come and be very upset with you? And he just looked at me and said it in one sentence. He said, Tarbandi se pehle hum tha. That's it, you know, before the fencing, I was there. So who are you and who are they to tell me where I can go was the substance of this um, comment? And I thought, shucks, that is so true. I mean, if we look at it, historically, this was all arid land grazing grounds. And of course, this was all before there was any sort of, uh, you know, public consultation. None of those things, right? Settlement of rights. So, yeah. I, I realized history is extremely relevant to what we are doing and um, the onus was on me to be more informed about the kind of uh, social setting I was entering and the complexities of uh, conservation on the ground. Because this was the other thing, right, wherever I had done field work, I was hearing uh, people in those places say conservation adds to their hardship. Um, So I I couldn't just brush that aside. When a whole bunch of people you really know and you like and you trust are telling you these things, you have to take it seriously. And I just, like I said, didn't have the intellectual frameworks to to know what to do with that information or how to look at it in a more uh, deeper sort of a fashion. So, I was uh, very determined that I wanted to learn some anthropology, some economics, some history, and you know, uh, br- deepen my work. Currently. And that's how I ended up doing an interdisciplinary PhD. It was very tough also because uh, in India, these subjects are very compartmentalized, right? If you have a biology training, you're banned from studying history. If a history training, you're banned from studying biology. So I think I just spammed so many people asking if they would let a biology background person learn. And I was willing to take extra courses and everything, but even then it's a very difficult system uh, to navigate if you are interested in in interdisciplinary studies. And the other challenge was that as far as possible, I wanted to do it in India, because I felt it would be easier to relate to things that I was seeing on the ground rather than studying abroad. Um, And yeah, the Indian system is just very difficult uh, to deal with on these kinds of matters. But luckily for me, I uh, heard about ATRI and their interdisciplinary PhD program. And uh, they were in fact happy when I said uh, during my interview that I want to do coursework. I don't want to straight away go to field. And I want to do coursework in uh, A, B, C, D unfamiliar subjects. So that, that was, um, yeah, that was a very welcome breathing space that uh, they were fine with uh, people coming with no prior background and they were willing to give you that chance to. Learn.
1: Wow, that's a very, very fascinating and interesting journey and so many things to uh, pick your brain about. But I'm going to refrain from a couple of them and just focus on one uh, before we continue to what you did for your PhD, uh, which is this thing you mentioned about caste and uh, positionality. And it reminded me of uh, this other story, which um, is one of my colleagues uh, who, who works in East Africa as an American was told by as a white person uh, was told by a white person in East Africa, I think South Africa, um, apparently the, the conversation was getting heated. And that person in Africa said, I am more African than you are American. So don't tell me what I should be doing. And you realize that, uh, I mean, these are the kind of examples, I guess, that an urban (laughs) caste unaware audience would first relate to. But what you mentioned is uh, like in parts of rural India, I mean, uh, I just had a crazy realization during one of my field, which is that, like you mentioned, if not for my upper caste positionality, and I think this is probably like 80 to 90% of people who uh, end up doing this kind of field simply because of the privilege they have. If not for that caste, upper caste positionality, field work would be much, much harder. And that is something nobody talks about, uh, especially in, in I mean, people who are, you know, uh, talking about ecology and con- conservation without people most of the time. But anyway, that was just an aside. Uh, but I, d- I do want to ask you about that and in terms of, do you think people's uh, awareness of these things are, are improving, awareness of who they are and, and their conduct of science in wildlife and ecology?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think there's at least more discussion about these kinds of things. We are a very long way from sort of addressing the barriers and uh, making it actually more inclusive and getting more researchers from diverse backgrounds. We have a long way to go. But uh, I I think it's, um, yeah, it's a very welcome change that we're all even starting to mumble something about these things and, you know, this general interest in, trying to diversify the group of researchers involved in conservation. I think it's
2: long road be I think also speaking of building this awareness and trying to figure these things out, um, you know, I also wanted to ask you, because like you just said, you've been in a position where you were thinking of starting out an interdisciplinary PhD and you had become a lot more aware that you need to have a better grasp of history, local politics, caste systems, anthropology, you know, these kind of things. and but you didn't have the training to do that. And, you know, funnily enough, I was also in similar shoes a few years ago, and you were the person I would spam with questions about anthropology and, you know, those kind of things. And clearly a lot of people from the fields of conservation ecology are having that problem because you go to field, you see how closely people and wildlife interact, how they use these spaces, and you realize that they're not mutually exclusive. And a lot of people end up looking at the social sciences because of this. But I also wanted to ask you, you know, what are the merits of going through that entire process of finding ways to train yourself in these fields uh you know taking yourself out of that very typically traditional ecologist mindset and putting yourself in a more contemporary interdisciplinary space over than uh maybe getting somebody on board who's already trained in anthropology and the social sciences and doing a collaboration with them maybe or you know what is a which is the right way to go? Or is there a particular time and place where you would rather do it yourself? Or you know, what is a good situation in which it's more uh, you know, beneficial to do it as a collaboration and get an outside expert?
0: Okay, that's an interesting question. Um, see, I, I don't look at it, first of all, as mutually exclusive options. Even if I uh, trained myself in anthropology, say, it doesn't mean that I in some particular project or in some context that I wouldn't like to have another person who's sort of a hardcore anthropologist also involved. Uh, it doesn't mean I should not consider that option still. But I think it's also important to ask what is the motivation, right? Because for me, it was this deeply personal experiences of what I was seeing and that kind of uh, ethical questions and existential dilemmas are not solved by adding people to your study team, right? I mean, this is your personal journey and it's things that are troubling you. So I think the onus has to be on you to go and figure out, you know, why it's troubling you and what is the lesson there to be learned from that experience, Um, So for me, it was very clear that this was something that I had to grapple with on my own and, uh, you know, figure out what it was that I wanted to do. And it really helped because I think um, it kept me very uh, focused on this idea of learning anthropology to just think more deeply about the ethics of conservation and the sort of questions, uh, you know, troubles it brings and the questions it raises. So for me, it was very easy to say political ecology is very specifically the domain that I want to specialize in because it does um, Focus so strongly on questions of ethics and power and inequalities, right? So in that sense, it made life a little simpler for me in terms of what kind of interdisciplinary work I wanted to do. Um, but uh, yeah, it, I, I can very well imagine that the journey will be very different for other people. And yeah, you might just uh, want to broaden your study team rather than uh, put yourself through learning different disciplines. And I also want to say that however motivated you are, there's a huge amount of this uh, boundary work that goes into disciplinary training and people are not always happy with the idea of interdisciplinary work because they feel if you haven't studied a discipline for five years, six years prior, then you shouldn't be jumping into it at the PhD stage and there are all these uh, you know difficult questions about rigor and depth that can really cram that amount of learning you know so many years down the line yeah I mean these disciplinary lines are also another kind of caste system <laughs> and you're and you do get caught in the middle of all of that as a student it's not an easy experience but really what kept me going was this very um, the sense that I have personal stakes in wanting to know what am I doing when I go out and do biodiversity studies? And is there a better way of doing it, a more inclusive way of doing it, or at least a more pluralistic way of doing it? Um, So that really helped helped me keep going. But I I don't think these are uh, mutually exclusive uh, options.
2: Right, right. No, that makes so much sense. And... uh i think it definitely helps like you were saying from you know the, your personal motivations and ethics because uh having validation and satisfaction from achieving something and making some kind of change or understanding something better is often the reason why many people go into this field so it makes sense that you need that kind of personal um you know motivation and drive as well and uh, I definitely personally relate to what you said. Where I feel like I personally want to be doing a lot of these things, and not just have others on board for the greater good. So that does definitely, um, yeah, make make a lot of sense.
1: This, this is all extremely interesting, and the I think our listeners will be uh, very interested to know to know now, like what was the outcome of this, right? This uh, this switch that you made and that that you trained yourself for so your your thesis your phd thesis uh, is titled conservation amidst development in a non equilibrium environment uh, where you studied the people managing turtles in orissa if i'm i may be totally wrong so could you uh, uh, but what you did it seemed like was use a fine tooth comb to sieve through the kinds of people who do conservation and uh, but but could you tell us more about what exactly you were working on and what you found and and how that sort of uh, quench that internal thirst for to explain the existentialism.
0: (laughs) I don't know if I explained the existentialism, but it was definitely a very interesting place to explore some of these questions. Um, One was that, uh, one is still, that uh, Orissa is an extremely densely inhabited coastline. So this was as far from the pristine wilderness kind of space as I could get. Um, There's this whole line of fishing villages and people's boats and uh, nets and everything on the beach. And we're all wandering about there. And you still get these thousands of uh, olive ridley turtles coming to nest on the same beach during Garibada. So there was this fantastic contrast uh, of an inhabited used space also being used and inhabited by spectacular number of wildlife. And that made it a very um, good location to look at these ideas about conservation and how theory versus practice uh, plays out. And the other interesting thing about Orissa was that um, there were so many different groups of people who call themselves conservationists. I mean, this is such a fundamental question, right? We tend to sort of take it for granted about who a conservationist. I mean, if you ask the researchers, they'll say somebody with a degree in conservation science. If you ask an NGO person, they'll say somebody who's passionate about wildlife. So each little community thinks it's the you know, proper definition of who a conservationist. And in Orisa, you just had a bunch of these different people all saying we are doing conservation. Sometimes they were doing similar things. Sometimes they were actually doing contradictory things, but everyone was convinced that they were doing conservation. And that made it so interesting. And I think the third and uh, possibly the most uh, practical reason why I landed up working in Orissa was when I spoke to Karthik Shankar about my interests in political ecology. He was one of the few biologists I know who was very excited about that way of looking at things. And he said, why don't you come and work at Orissa? It sounds like a very suitable setting for the kind of questions you're interested in. So, yeah, it was just a happy coincidence of all of these things. And the fact that I had also been a turtle walker when I was in school. So it was um, some comfort level with the species about, you know, what these uh, turtle transects mean and being able to do a little bit of that as well on the side. Yeah, so um, all of these things made it a very interesting place to go and work in for a PhD. Also, uh, on a more intellectual note, (laughs) was this thing about non-equilibrium environments, right? Um, Again, we we tend to study conservation in the sanitized landscape. So here was a very inhabited developing landscape as well. There were major uh, industrialization plans, plans to intensify fisheries, all kinds of things going on there. And it's a non-equilibrium landscape because um, coastal Orissa goes through these Pretty uh, marked erosion and deposition uh, processes, and uh, it, so what? How does that whole um, fluidity of the landscape influence conservation and the fluidity of the species itself? Because olive ridleys are migrant uh, turtles, uh, so what happens in these kinds of situations was something that I was interested in looking at because conservation tends to be very territorially contained you know, uh, and we talk a lot about closed populations, though that's only supposed to be a convenient uh, conceptual simplification to help us estimate numbers or something, but we kind of forget that when it comes to practice and conservation practice also behaves like it's dealing with closed populations. Um, So yeah, Orisa provided a great setting to look at some of these things more uh, carefully and see what happens.
2: No, that's uh, very interesting because so many people talk about the need for doing holistic research or holistic conservation, but that still seems to be more of a keyword than something that's done in practice very often. And, you know, like you're saying that actually looking at the various people and groups of people that claim to be conservationists and who are interacting with that system in different ways was Interesting, of course, but also I'm sure very important even from an application standpoint or from knowing what is actually going on there. Um, and so in the process of doing that, you've you know, looked at local policymakers, local governance and forest department officials, and you ended up talking to lots of different groups of people, which is like a whole different demography from the kind of people that a lot of researchers tend to talk to and most of the work I think ends up being focused on local communities and um, so in this case perhaps it was the fisher folk and in some places it may be farmers or villagers or um, indigenous communities but like you're saying, they're just one part of a larger picture, right? And I think you've also, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you've tried to continue doing that even uh, as you've continued work in other landscapes. So how has that been for you to, you know, look at things even from that side of the demography that is involved with conservation and what have been the good bits that have, you know, kind of come out from that or maybe even the challenges perhaps, since I'm sure there are challenges considering, that's often an overlooked group of people.
0: Yeah, <clears throat> I also must say that one of the big actors uh, in this whole conservation matrix are the species themselves. Um, so that, uh, in spite of all the you know planning and implementation, the human actors were doing in Orissa, the turtles were also on their own trip and you know introducing all kinds of complications into these conservation <laughs> plans. Uh, and that was fascinating to, to watch, right, to also work, uh, record how people interpreted these changes to their plans because of total behavior and, and their perspective on how to deal with it. So that was really interesting to, uh, yeah, to learn from. I I think in terms of the actual study challenges, one of the most difficult things is I feel to establish your credibility when you're doing interdisciplinary research not just with uh, you know your committee or you know your colleagues or whatever in the academy but also outside because um, and I think I've said this before elsewhere uh, people understand expertise in certain ways. So if you say you're a biologist, they expect you to behave in a certain way, to collect data in a certain way. And uh, similarly, if you say you're a social scientist, they expect you to do these ABCD standard things. And if you push the envelope there, then you find you have to keep explaining yourself to everybody. And then you run into this uh, very confused gray area of uh, how do you convince them of your expertise, but still go ahead with the methods that you have chosen for whatever reason, right? (coughs) To give you a concrete example, um, most of the forest department people I interacted with were very puzzled about why somebody with a biology training would come to coastal Orissa (coughs) And say, I'm not interested in estimating turtle populations. I mean, why is that something you're not doing was a big question I was asked. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And similarly, a lot of the fishing villages were used to uh, people coming and doing socioeconomic surveys. The fact that I walked around without any survey forms did not work in my favor because they thought I was not very serious about my work or I didn't really know what I was doing. And they were quite concerned about how are you going to finish your PhD? <laughs> so I thought I was having these interesting methods conversations as well with all kinds of unexpected people. And that's something I didn't really anticipate. Um, so I think one of the challenges uh, at the field level is, yeah, is, uh, you know, uh, establishing your credibility and to reassure people that you actually know what you're doing and you are doing ABCD things because of, certain uh, properly thought out choices of method and considerations. So that was one set of challenges. The other is also the kind of paperwork and permissions you have to navigate if you're doing interdisciplinary work, right? I mean, there's a fair bit of red tape if you're doing a single discipline study, but the more elements you add to it, then sort of the more uh, of these things you have to sort of budget time and energy into doing properly, yeah. Yeah, so those are definitely challenging things. But I, I think I overall enjoyed the process. I, I liked the sort of multiplicity of views that uh, came out and, and that whole uh, sort of uh, polyvalent um, descriptions of what conservation is, how, what the turtles are like and, and who's a real conservationist. I mean, everyone had such interesting, colorful and strong opinions on what each of these things were. And that made it so interesting because when I pieced it together as the listener in all of these conversations, then it was actually able to explain a lot of the peculiar twists and turns that were uh, being played out on the field. You could suddenly make much more sense of what was happening. Uh, rather than just saying, you know, unforeseen and unexpected and leaving it in that very bland <laughs> <laughs> description, you were actually able to explain how that unforeseen or unexpected event played out and pro- possibly even why it happened the way it did. So that was a very interesting experience.
2: Yeah, that, that sounds uh, both fun and, uh, you know, keeping like something that would keep you on your toes constantly. Yeah. Um, so you know that it's it's quite interesting like you were saying even i think within the academic circles when you start doing some of this interdisciplinary stuff you end up constantly justifying yourself to either one group of uh, academics, right? You're always trying to convince the ecologists that, no, we need to do these more unstructured ways of uh, collecting data and collecting information and everything doesn't have to be about numbers and sample size when you also have to tell um, the other group of people that, no, we also need to look at it a little more quantitatively, sometimes perhaps, or also look at the species, like you said, and that can also be quite... Yeah, I mean, this (laughs) binary
0: thinking is a real nuisance. I mean, this (laughs) unnecessary thing of quant versus qual instead of just looking at what's a meaningful mix or even, you know, which pure method works in what context. It's a completely unnecessary bit of uh, partitioning that happens. And, and, uh, and yeah, uh, people also caricaturing the other side. So, a lot of the mm, uh, sort of activist NGO ish people I met in Orissa felt I'm not uh, sincere because I was not ready to straight away join some three, four anti conservation campaigns. And similarly, a lot of the conservation people, uh, sort of, you know, the turtle voices, we are the voices of the turtle people, they felt I was again. Uh, very doubtful dubious character because i'm going on talking to people which means i must be anti wildlife and <laughs> this is just such a nuisance it, it was completely i thought unnecessary um, stereotyping of both sides
2: yeah oh uh, yeah stereotyping is the word for sure <laughs> Okay, also take us from Orissa to some of the work that came after, and you also ended up spending many years working in the islands, in the Andaman and Nicobar Islands, and how did that happen? When? What was your first introduction to the islands uh, before we jump into what you did there? Ah, that's where I met you both.
0: Well, I'd been hearing about the islands a very long time when I did that travel uh, co work in Crocodile Bank from then on, and I would also uh, run into colleagues who worked in the Andamans and who were just you know passing through uh, Crocodile Bank. They would share notes and experiences, um, so I felt I knew about the islands a lot more than a sort of first time visitor normally would. Um, And then I went to the Andamans myself in 2005 uh, on a short trip, but I got to know a lot of people on that trip again, um, following up on some of those Crocodile Band connections, a lot of people at Annette. And then when I uh, went back more recently, I think it was 2017 maybe, yeah, I didn't feel like I was uh, entering an entirely new landscape because there were a lot of these old friendships through which I had known uh, quite a lot about the islands and the issues there. And uh, so when I actually went to work there, it didn't feel like a completely new landscape. Um, Yeah, the islands are very interesting. I've never been to the Nipo Bar, so anything I say has to do with the Andamans. Um, I find it very fascinating that uh, they have such a multicultural history. And also a very old trade history, Um, because this, again, completely overturns the typical way in which we write about biodiverse landscapes, right, as remote, untouched, blah, blah, blah. But then you hear that, I mean, you read at least about these fantastic historical accounts about the Andaman Islands and, you know, uh, centuries of people uh, stopping by to trade and see cucumbers and trochus shells and whatnot and all these um, uh, British efforts to try and uh, create a settlement there. Yeah, so it, it's historically and socially a very interesting place because of these kinds of um, connections to the larger world. And for me, it was also uh, very interesting because there's a strong uh, post-colonial thread that connects the Andamans to other parts of Southeast Asia. It was one of the straight island settlement groups. Uh, So I think the other counterparts were Singapore, uh, Penang, Kuching, these other places as well. They're sort of contemporary to uh, Port Blair. But yeah, they're so different again. I think Singapore is similar in the sense of its uh, social uh, makeup when you compare it to the Andamans. But uh, yes, economically it's very different and one... Huge point I, want, I would like to mention here is that Singapore does not grow any food, uh, which is why it's so industrialized. Whereas that's not the case in the Andamans. It's still quite agrarian um, and therefore not very industrialized. Uh, so the trajectories have been very different and I think that makes it interesting also. Um, yeah, so so this, this sense of history to the islands uh, is a very attractive feature for me personally to work on them. And from the beginning, um, people have uh, sort of made homes in the Andamans from living off nature, right? So whether you look at the uh, indigenous communities or you look at the settler communities, this relationship to the land has been very critical because it was uh, quite a far-flung place and there were very limited uh, options for communities to sustain themselves so i think there's also this long history of transformation of nature and uh, you know how that has driven uh, social and economic development in particular ways
1: Well, that's very interesting and i noticed there is of course a very deep and and and, and complicated and interesting history to the uh, to the region but uh, maybe the opposite is also true that so many people are so recent in the archipelago uh, that their histories are a mix of their mainland and now their newly forming narratives. And that was something I noticed while working there, that the ethnobotany was, in some sense, in, in in its making. Like you could see the early evolution of, uh, you know, names of plants that were common in Bangladesh, erstwhile Bangladesh and, and Orissa and Jharkhand, are being modified based on form and function to trees that are technically not uh, South Asian. They are Indo-Burman. Uh, which they would never have encountered in, say, Chhattisgarh or Jharkhand, but they match in form. So I- is that something that your work also looks at, at the, the flux of culture and the forming of history?
0: Well, that's fascinating because I think I've heard a couple of the biology people mention this, that if they have these yeah, disconcerting habit of using uh, local names from the mainland or to completely different species in the Andamans. And unless you were a biologist, you would not even realize what was going on, right? <laughs> because these are familiar names in the mainland. And only if you were a biologist, you realize that, hey, these are different species, probably even different genera. And why are these people using those names? But yeah, there seems to be this huge element of nostalgia coming into the making of uh, local knowledge here, which is something that's very interesting. And uh, no, I mean, I really want to look at it more closely, but I've just not gotten around to doing it uh, in any systematic way. But you're so right, Akshay, that uh, this is a very fascinating aspect of ecological knowledge on India. Mm And it's also, like you're saying, uh, knowledge that is, uh, historically speaking, quite nascent and quite new. I mean, 50, 60 years of settlement is not that old as compared to the many. I was just also going to say that there seems to be more um, fluidity here between communities because uh, some of the, you know, ranchi or the around, I mean, ranchi itself is a very, general category, let's say the Orao, Munda and some other group, they're all sort of uh, mixing and matching names from each other's traditional systems here. There's a fair bit of uh, give and take. And similarly, the Telugu and the uh, Bengali and the Tamil fishermen all seem to be swapping names with each other as well when it comes to fish. Uh, So this is a more fluid landscape and yeah, it's something we should all study better. (laughs) idea of local knowledge in transplanted populations, transplanted human communities.
2: Yeah, no, it's, it's very interesting because in so many ways uh, when you look at whether it's the ecology or the local cultures uh, which are influx right now, or which are new, um, it all seems to be this very unique case study, right? Because you don't see this sort of thing anywhere else. It's not uh, automatically transferable or extrapolatable to other regions. And I think a lot of us who've done slightly niche projects in the Andamans have had that trouble justifying or defending our Um, you know, proposals and things like that to uh, various people, whether it is, you know, funders or advisors, because it's not this larger uh, bit of knowledge that you can say, oh, if I study it here, it will inform things elsewhere. It's just that you understand what's happening there. And I think that's also interestingly true for how uh, the islands are perceived right for people outside of the research communities or people who have been there or know so much about it like you were also saying you started getting exposed to the island because you were at mcbp at the crock bank and you were hearing from researchers who've been there before but for mainlanders in general who don't really know what's happening there and because there's not that much awareness you know outside of the fact that oh it's you know maybe ecologically fragile or a very remote slightly exotic land there's not much uh, about that entire microcosm that the mainlanders are really aware about so what do you how do you think the islands are perceived generally by people from the mainland who don't have this very uh you know particular knowledge about the islands or don't really know what's happening and how can we or, I don't know, anybody at this point who is associated with the Andamans kind of get that across
0: and get over those
2: more, you know, those now very outdated tropes about what's happening there?
0: I think the first part of the question is the easy one. I think most people on the mainland, I uh, think of the islands as this uh, very densely forested place with a few uh, world-class tourism hotspots. <laughs> I think that about <laughs> something, right? If Either they say, oh, it's full of forests and coral reefs, or they say, oh, I went to Have luck on a holiday. <laughs> and that's a pretty much a summary of how the islands are seen. Um, but yeah, obviously, just, there's a lot more to that uh, area than these two comments about it. And yeah, this is something that I often uh, hear when I'm back here and I'm trying to explain to people uh, what's interesting about the Andamans or what my work there is. Uh, First of all, they are surprised at this long history of the government settling different groups of people there in the islands and the kind of uh, development promises or years that were offered. And then um, ecologically also it's very interesting because in spite of its uh, huge forest cover, I think over 90%, um, it's also a very long history of working uh, the forest for timber and for various other things, right? So this is again, something we still do. We just start with this uh, dense forest cover kind of comment in all, all our ecology papers, but the truth is that forest cover is not uh, you know untouched or whatever. There are proper, uh, you know, felling coupes and uh, afforestation plans, and all going back to hundred years old. And so that makes it a very interesting landscape. The other uh, element, I think, to the whole mix is yeah, this um, aspect of international trade. It's not something new, uh, and it's been there for a very long time. Like you have the Chola kingdom records talking about going to the Nicobars. And then you have um, all all these Malay and Chinese traders talking about uh, dealing in sea cucumbers and whatnot in the island, in the Andamans, uh, at least in the 1800s and probably even a bit earlier. So a very uh, networked place. And I think uh, these are probably uh, aspects of the islands that mainlanders really need to hear more about. Um, because there's also a lot of peculiar uh, hang-ups about development in the islands. Like for many people sitting here, because their image of the islands is uh, only of these one or two tourism uh, spots or of uh, forested landscapes, they tend to have a very extreme view of development there, which is actually pretty unfair to the local settler population. I mean, everybody has aspirations about the quality of life and the kind of life they want to live. And it becomes very hard to um, deny that legitimate uh, set of wants. But uh, they're very interesting in terms of, I think they provide a great space to seriously look at issues of sustainable development. Because, um, you know, uh, Andamans has very few islands which have freshwater sources. So drinking water has historically been a restraining factor, uh, severe constraint. And then uh, things like waste management, sewage management, all of these become very critical in these kinds of uh, biodiverse-rich spaces because you can see the impact of poor planning or poor implementation very uh, clearly. And because uh, so much of the island economy is dependent on resources, whether it's fisheries or tourism or whatever, I think there's also serious social interest in getting the um, formula right, right? Uh, A a proper mix of what kinds of development should we invest in, what sort of infrastructure do we need, uh, versus maintaining some kind of ecological richness which is so critical to the islands. So I I think it's a great case for this uh, uh, sort of contemporary nature society question of what is sustainable development, um, whom should it uh, really cater to, what are the different ways in which it can be done, those kinds of questions.
1: Yeah, that's super interesting. And it actually brings me right to my question, which is about the trade-off between sustainability and development. And something that you mentioned uh, struck me very, it, it struck me as very interesting, which is how people were settled with the promise of development, uh, and and this reminds me when I was uh, when I was working there and my my uh, field field assistants there were from uh, erstwhile um, erstwhile West Pakistan, East Pakistan, and they were promised land, but they were, they told how they were just given land. They were not. They had to clear the forest themselves. They had to remove the the, the roots and burn them, and they initially ate uh, food out of makaranga leaves. Uh, and they would go up to the ranchi settlements and get rice from there and then there, you know, finally now it's, you know, much more developed. But this and that actually uh, brings me to the question of, well, it is in some sense a great example to test out sustainability of water, waste, everything that you mentioned. But at the same time, uh, is it just if the aspirations of people do not match the sustainability criteria? uh, How do you see that trade-off happening, especially now in the context of uh, development? Plans. Like for instance, the national highway, the, the main uh, road is a national highway and it's probably the worst national highway in India by far, right? Uh, so how do you see that sustainability fitting in there, like our role as researchers and people who care about nature as well?
0: Well, I, I think one of the most important things for us to do is tell more nuanced accounts of uh, what happens in these places right. I I think too often like I was mentioning earlier also we look at things in very black and white terms and start taking sides even before we understand the full complexity of the place or of the problem and that I feel really does not help especially in the long term. Because most of these conversations around sustainable development are not just about finding the correct technological solution, but they're also this larger matter of negotiating for what kind of aspirations are possible and what kind of landscapes, right? And a lot of it has to be through consensus building and everybody feeling like they have some say in the matter or they're at least being heard. Um, And I, I think that's a tough one. I mean, this is probably a very idealistic goal, but I think that is a very necessary kind of a trajectory rather than people elsewhere kind of deciding, oh, this should be maintained this way or they don't need that infrastructure or no, they do need that infrastructure. A lot of it is just so imposed from elsewhere and by by all of us who don't really know uh, sometimes the local scenarios too well. And, I, and, and again, the ecology of the place itself plays such a huge uh, role in shaping how infrastructure works or doesn't work, right? Like the state of the roads is mostly because of the kind of crazy heavy rainfall you see in a few months. And the fact that the topography slopes in a particular way, so there's serious wash off. There's all these other factors as well. And yeah, ideally sustainable development conversations would <laughs> work with a mix and match of these different things. But we yet to get there. But there are a lot of island nations that seem to be doing these kinds of things very well, or at least uh, making very serious attempts to have these discussions with their uh, populations. So maybe that's something we need to look at. Mm. Because, for instance, a uh, food waste management, all of these things are very big in some of the island nations which depend on tourism. And uh, I think that, you know, is something that's just begging to be discussed in the Andamans, also use of plastics and things like that. Yeah. So there's a scope, I think, for a lot of this kind of uh, participatory uh, these things, and see people's aspirations will obviously be influenced by whatever looks like a good life. So that's a very serious conversation to have. It's a bit much if all of us from the mainland want to just fly in, fly out, and then tell other people they oh you can't you know aspire to A B C D kinds of infrastructure because then it spoil the ecological aesthetics of this place. That's really a bit much. <laughs> Yeah. And so um. Yeah. I think these are a lot of uh, delicate conversations, but they need to be had, and we really need a more, uh, more multidimensional uh, examination of what development means and what a sense of well-being means. Uh, these are not necessarily the same uh, conversation, right? A sense of well-being is often much more than material development. Material development is necessary, but not sufficient. That was so well put. And like we were talking about even earlier
2: about the disconnect in communication and knowledge uh, which influences the way mainlanders perceive islanders or settler communities. It also goes both ways, right? Because there's also a huge information disconnect between how people who are living on the islands perceive those coming in from mainland, and it feels like you know through conversations. Even when I was working in uh, Nicobar, which you know is arguably even more remote and even more disconnected uh, from the mainland in many ways, the Way in which life on mainland is perceived in terms of luxury, in terms of access to uh, the government, even just getting yourself heard, uh, it's just so much more magnified. I like, I remember having a conversation with one of the first generation settlers there, uh, who was an ex army man, uh, you know, from Punjab, who has lived there for the last 50 years, and he. It's just he took me being there as a bit of a lifeline, like as though I could be the middleman between him and the prime minister. And, the, you know, the one thing he wanted me to communicate was how much it cost him to just build a functioning bathroom and get plumbing in place and how difficult that had been. And, you know, he just... Made interview, sat me down, and he was like, "See, I need you to go to Delhi, and I need you to tell him that this is how much I've spent. I can give you bills." So you know there is that, uh, that very, you know, different way in which they perceive us coming from outside as well and the power that we have. Thanks
0: for that example. Yeah, because I I think you've also hit on a point that I didn't make very clearly that development is again a catch-all category from a person wanting some basic amenity like a sanitation facility to maybe a very swanky airport or something. These are all just clubbed together as development, but obviously some amenities are very essential for a basic quality of life and the others are a little more negotiable. And again, as I think people who mostly come from an ecological background, we tend to oversimplify these discussions on development you know, and sort of as a matter of principle, oppose everything and anything. Uh, so I, yeah, that's a great example actually. Ishika, thanks.
2: Yeah, no, I think it's, uh, it's just amazing to sit and reflect over a lot of these past conversations now, because it has been a while since both Akshay and I went back now, I don't think either of us have gone back for the last three years. Uh, But it's also given me personally the time to reflect on so many of these conversations we've had and some of these slightly salient uh, features from the conversations, which may not be related to the research we're doing at all, but it gives you a lot of perspective for what's going on. Yeah, they're educational
0: conversations.
2: They're not data. Yeah, definitely. I think what we call data is also uh, surely changing over time.
1: (laughs) So Madhuri, uh, we'd we'd like to... uh... Come towards the end of this conversation, unfortunately, but uh, there's still a lot to talk, discuss, and hopefully, we we'll link all your uh, amazing articles and content that you've written, scientific content and otherwise, on our, uh, our podcast uh, episode. Spam
0: your listeners. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Gently nudge them, more like. Uh, but um, before that, we you are now a teacher at Azeen Premji University, you've donned a new hat besides an ecologist and a social scientist. Uh, and and, and how, how has that experience been where uh, not only do you have to, one is of course, the fact that, um, you know, you're, you're, you're not, you're a political ecologist who, who, who has, uh, you know, one foot in both ecology and social science, and how that Uh, plays into your legitimacy towards students both positive and negative plus the whole experience of managing teaching with research and the kind of work that you do which is very uh very involved right it's 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 not it's not the like abstraction gives you a sense of comfort and a sense of routine which i guess the kind of work that you do you may not have that luxury so uh, could you just speak to that a bit yeah i mean
0: it is challenging to uh combine a full teaching schedule and uh, research of this kind because, uh, yeah, my my research work is very uh, time and labor intensive in general. So, I have, yeah, I, I'm still trying to find a balance between the two, two, that's for sure. Um, But when it comes to uh, teaching at Azeem Premji University, it's actually uh, been a very uh, interesting uh, shift of uh, scene for me because here are the students we get. I teach in the School of Development. So we usually tend to get students who are very interested in the social dimensions of things. And I have the opposite struggle here. To constantly remind them that ecology matters and biodiversity is very necessary to sustain life and livelihoods. And we can't just only talk about economics and benefit sharing. We have to talk about the state of the natural resource itself. So it's... a um, It's quite a contrast to the kind of conversations I used to have with uh, the ecology people. And that's a, yeah, that's a different and interesting kind of experience. The other thing is that, uh, yeah, it's much easier also here to have conversations about justice and equity because people already come with some kind of training or inclination to look at those kinds of topics. Um, So again, that's quite a change. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, there, are, there is often too much belief in qualitative data as being more humanistic and somehow quantitative data is uh, too clinical, doesn't really reflect people's needs, that kind of the reverse bias that ecologists have. So yeah, all of that's been very illuminating because you realize every community has its uh, set of founding myths And then uh, the challenge is to, yeah, to then get people to think about things in a little more open-minded way and say, okay, can we mix some elements? Is there some useful things to be learned from the other set of practices or the other disciplines and how do we do that? So, yes, this uh, search for the middle ground is an ongoing one. (laughs)
2: It's uh, it's funny, you know, because we are trying to remove binaries altogether. But the only way we manage to do that is by having like a middle neutral zone between the two binaries. Um, But No, binaries
0: are useful, right? They're useful Mm -hmm. to think about things and to understand uh, concepts or how the world works. They are useful, yes, but I think we need to be more skillful about when we use them and how we use them. I think that's my um, reservation. That it should not be this uh, unthinking slotting of things into black and white. That needs to be more skillful mix and match that we uh, teach and we practice as researchers. And it's a fantastic contrast, like it keeps me on my toes for sure, because when I give occasional talks to the biologists, I'm constantly bringing in history and anthropology. And um, back here in the university, I'm constantly bringing in ecology, wherever I can squeeze a bit in, so.
1: I mean, and going back to this reminds me, going back to something you mentioned right at the beginning, which is about uh, like the idea of closed populations, right? That in, in, in for turtles, it's a heuristic that then becomes fact. And I guess uh, that's something that uh, is sort of is like a theme that runs through uh, our conversation today, which is which is that uh, there are these ideas and narratives that people build about places, about uh, ideas of sustainability and nature and people, and
0: about disciplines. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah. And then they then they become fact, and then nobody questions how that happened. Which is, I guess, what you're trying to do. Which is yeah. amazing.
0: And we're all very puzzled about why things don't work the so maybe we think it should. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. It's quite ironic.
2: I was just thinking back uh, to many years back now. which I feel you should also perhaps Madhuri consider this entire conversation we've been happening, um, we've been having as a bit of a personal victory because I remember Akshay really grilling you about why we should look at the social aspect and doing this, why it come at it from an interdisciplinary angle. The very first time we met you and you gave us a talk, and uh, it's pretty interesting to have this conversation now where Akshay is seeing, you know, the relevance of all of this. <laughs>
0: Welcome to the fallen biologist's gang. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, so I also now, you know, considering we're slowly coming to the end of this, there is uh, there, there are these questions that we ask everybody who we interview, which I think helps us a lot and also perhaps helps those who are listening in Which is, you know, through everyone's personal journeys, you have so many points of inspiration, of influence, of people, places, things that keep you going. So um, could you reflect a bit on who these people have been for you, who have really left an impact on you, who have maybe influenced your decisions or your path in some way, Um, what places have spoken to you and various things, like it could even be books that you have read or uh, movies you've watched or conversations you'd had. So could you share some of those things with us?
0: Okay, that's a bit of a tough one because I've worked in so many different places. But uh, I I think um, two landscapes have had a very formative influence on me. One was the animalized because it was my first independent research study and like I said it opened the door to so many other questions and interests and the other was uh, the desert Uh, just for its stark beauty which was again something that I was not expecting at all because the writing on deserts is so dreary and dry but the landscape itself is fascinating and yeah so those two landscapes have been um, I think some of my uh, sharpest memories have are from those places um in terms of people uh, well that's a long line um, but uh, okay let me try and just uh, name a few people that, with the uh, humongous apologies to a bunch of others <laughs> whom i may not have time to list here but i think one of the um, people who who really had a pivotal influence on me was is Sushma Rao She was uh, studying um, neilkiri langurs and resource partitioning and all those things in the uh, Palpare Plateau. And uh, she introduced me to forest botany. I mean, that was, uh, again, a very transformative experience to go botanizing with her in the waterfalls, uh, estate pastures, because uh, all through you know, formal learning, I had thought botany is about these really boring floral <laughs> diagrams and slides. Somehow, just I mean, those things just did not appeal to me. And I slept through most of my botany courses. But being there and you know, standing right under this giant kulina tree and trying to see where the canopy was, and having Sushma patiently explain some 17 times over uh, what tree it is and what uh, colored sleeves are and how to look for those identifying features, I mean, that was an amazing experience. Then uh, another uh, set of great influences have been my uh, local assistants. So Ganesalana in uh, Topslip and uh, Musa Khan in uh, Jaisalmer. I mean, not just their knowledge of the landscape, but also their people handling skills and uh, their work ethics. They were real taskmasters. So even more than me, I felt they were very invested in the project and in seeing that data was gathered meticulously and regularly. And I really learned a lot of work ethics from just watching them in action. These were both very demanding projects and, and we all dealt with a huge amount of fatigue. You know, Even though they were from that landscape, these were not easy species to study at all. And I learned a lot about work ethics so from just watching them in action. Um, then, uh, well, no, no, I'm not much of a movie watcher, so I can't think of anything that have particularly influenced me. Books, well, a lot. I keep reading all the time, and I think uh, poetry is as interesting as uh, well-written uh, science books. So I'd be hard-pressed to name anything. And truth be told, I'm usually happiest reading crime stories and not <laughs> natural history. So, <laughs> <laughs> I, And I think uh, I rarely am sort of inspired by technical writing. It's something I force myself to do because it's part of being a researcher. <laughs> but I, I really enjoy writing popular articles much more than anything
2: else. Amazing. That... Uh... You know, actually, that reminds me uh, of the couple of books that you have written, which are non-academic and uh, which are more in the popular realm uh, with Manish, uh, with Manish Chandy, who also, you know, we had a, a, the opportunity of speaking with through this series on life with the Kadar communities. And you also got a fabulous illustrator to make it so visually appealing. Um what, what was that like, writing that book and producing it? And do you think that's a good, fun way to communicate more about uh, local knowledge?
0: Yeah, I mean, that, that was a, that's a whole story in itself. Um, but yes, that, that's definitely been one of the most rewarding uh, pieces of writing that I've been involved in. And that involved uh, collaborations on so many levels and with so many people. Um, because uh, the books talk about the Kadar uh, mythologies about the forest and also about how they uh, walk in the forest and the kind of embedded knowledge uh, that they have. So it involved an element of collaboration with them. Then it involved an element of collaboration between Manish and me. Because we had actually worked in the landscape and during completely different time periods. within overlap and in different parts of the landscape. So we sort of put it together only in the act of writing. And then the collaboration with the illustrator, who is actually based in the UK, but uh, he made a lot of effort to get the details right and asked for a lot of photographs. And he visited India as well, though he wasn't able to go to the animal per se. Uh, and then uh, yeah, the discussion with the publishers, who again have a long history of Uh, working with uh, tribal artists like Baju Sham. I loved the London Jungle book that they had done earlier. Uh, Yeah, so it involved so many different uh, people coming together on this one um, project. It was very interesting, but it took a long time. It took many, many years. In fact, we just did a webinar yesterday about the books and uh, perhaps your listeners might uh, like to check that out. If they
1: want to hear a longer um, account of how we went about
2: making these things. No, yeah, definitely. that would be super. Yeah, yeah, we'll definitely link that into the show notes. That would be great.
1: All right. We have to unfortunately wrap up Madhuri, but this was great. We had an amazing time listening to you. And hopefully our listeners will too. Uh, lots to uh, think about and lots of uh, links in our show notes to follow on. Thank you.
0: Thank you both so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks,
2: Madhuri. It's been great. I'm sure Madhuri has left you with a lot to think about, regardless of what field of work you belong to or where your interests lie. This is certainly a conversation I keep coming back to. Tune in next Sunday again for my conversation with Pankaj Sekhsarya, where we dissect all that is currently transpiring on the island of Great Nicobar. Thanks for listening.